0: The Melting Pot, hosted by Dominic Monkhouse. Hello, welcome to The Melting Pot. This is Dominic Monkhouse. I'm joined today by Rob Belgrave, who is the CEO at WireHive. Uh, they are a technology service provider for the digital agency community in the United Kingdom. Rob has a unique view, I think, of where the rise of robotics, artificial intelligence and machine learning is taking us. It's not the typical dystopian view of robots taking over the world and us all losing our jobs. He's looked deep into history, he's looked into the Renaissance to see what that period could tell us about our future. So, with no further ado, Rob Belgrove.
1: My business, Wirehive, is a technology business. I've worked in technology my whole career, and I've kind of cut a path translating complex technology for people and and helping businesses kind of get value from doing things with amazing technology. So I I, I guess I consider myself pretty well-placed to have a good understanding of what's coming in the future. I recently was out in... South by Southwest, which is a big kind of technology festival in in Austin, in Texas. And I I gave a talk called Digital Renaissance, The Best is Yet to Come, which kind of focuses on this exact area with my uh, podcast co-host, a guy called Jim Bowes, who runs an agency in London called Manifesto. And together, we we sort of formed this viewpoint that actually, maybe everything's going to be great in the future, that, you know, there's a huge amount of of dystopia being written about, talked about, lots of sci-fi being made, that kind of focuses on this idea of, you know, the sort of Skynet scenario, images of Terminator-like figures, this sort of concept that artificial intelligence is going to take over, robots are going to take all of our jobs, and, and humans are going to become redundant. And I think that, actually, from where I'm sitting, that's certainly not the guaranteed outcome, and actually not necessarily even the likely outcome to sort of draw inspiration for this idea, we went and looked at what happened during the Renaissance. So uh, many people will know a lot more about the Renaissance than I did, but I, I did a lot of research for the talk and, and was kind of pleasantly surprised that my, my assertions seemed to be right. So during the Renaissance, predominantly in kind of Italy and, and, and Central Europe, there was this amazing period of, of change and, and growth. And it sort of affected everything. It affected art, m- music, science, technology... Uh, the distribution of wealth social mobility like it just everything kind of changed and you know there's some key figures from that period Nic- nicholas copernicus the guy who figured out the heliocentric view of the universe which means the sun's in the middle which is actually quite important galileo you know lots of really famous people and obviously leonardo da vinci who was kind of an all-round rock star of the, of the era you know the mona lisa still hangs in, in paris today and, uh, one of his most famous pieces of work but he also did a lot of work with technology And one of the things that happened during that period which made this all possible was the plague. And the plague killed about half of the population of every major city in Italy, which was kind of the epicentre of the whole movement. And that doesn't sound particularly utopian, but what that meant was that suddenly there was this huge abundance of resources because they had all of this machinery and, and the sort of the mechanics of their society was set up to service a population twice the size of the population they found themselves with which meant that suddenly everybody was quite wealthy there was plenty of food to go around and it kind of created this amazing period where people had free time and could kind of get creative and, and when humans can get creative we do some of our best work and so you know, sort of to, to paraphrase a bit, I think that's the vision I have for the future potentially is maybe actually the machines and, and the artificial intelligence will take away a lot of the boring stuff, the medial tasks, the manual labor and free us up to focus on the stuff humans do so well. And and that will definitely include philosophy and music, music and art and all the kind of softer stuff, but actually will definitely feature, you know, changes to the way we we understand ourselves and each other, the way our society is put together and the technology that will continue to develop as well. So that's the kind of headlines, I guess. And I can talk about some of the specifics about why that's going to happen, if you like. Yeah, that's great. The three kind of key areas that featured in the Renaissance were the, the technology, the, the ethics of the people. So we'll focus on the technology a little bit first. So there's this concept called demonetization that you really need to understand to really get a picture of the future. And demonetization is the concept that everything at some point in the future is essentially going to be free or at marginal cost and that is because of technologies and so a few, a few key areas to kind of illustrate that so the first one would be energy energy is fast becoming essentially free i had a bit of a hippie upbringing and i was always told by my mum my you know one day we'll crack this energy thing and it'll be great and and i'm very pleased to say that that is actually within our grasp i mean within the next 10 years it looks like that's going to be a reality 8,000 times more energy hits the surface of the planet every day from the sun than we use. And we just need to figure out how to capture that. We can do that in a number of different ways. Hydro and solar look like the two winners at the moment. And uh, solar technology is getting to a point where energy production will you know, fall well below the cost of doing it with traditional power plants and stuff. And I think that's the nice thing about, all of the, about this demonetization trend is it's driven by capitalism ultimately, which is why it's, there's no doubt it will happen. There was a, a week in Germany, I think in March last year, or possibly April, where it was so windy and they have a massive wind farm set up in Germany. There was so much wind during that period that the energy production cost from their nuclear facilities was higher than the spot price they could sell energy on the market. So they actually shut down production of energy from their nuclear plants for a period of about a week because they were generating so much cheap electricity from wind. So this is all happening Energy is going to basically be free. So then, what happens next?
0: So today, energy isn't free, but I'm just struck by how much change we've already had. As as the compute power that we rely on for many of uh, the transformational changes in the world today, as as the cost of compute or storage uh, or networking, telephone calls, mobile phone calls, data transmission, that's all tending towards zero. I was almost almost at zero, and so. It's just fascinating that there's a, it's going to be a second wave of change as energy becomes, yeah. <laughs> uh, becomes free as well.
1: Well, exactly. So that's why I start with energy, because I think it's probably the most profound change that we'll see, right? It's, it's because so much stuff can be d- driven by electricity now and we will come on to some of the other things. So the second key thing for me is communication. Something many people don't realize is that actually only about 55% of the global population of the planet has Internet access today. Which is really low, in my opinion, like much lower than I think someone's perception is if they live in a, you know, cosmopolitan capital city, or even in a developed country, right? I think like internet access is considered a basic human right these days in many ways, and and sort of probably second to running water, I, I would suggest, and with good reason, right? So, what's happening in the in the space of communication? Well, the energy changes will make the infrastructure very cheap or basically free to run, but also. There are a number of companies engaged in activities that will put internet infrastructure in space or in low orbit, which will mean that for the first time, we will have true 100% coverage of our planet. I mean, the people that are doing that are the likes of Facebook. Google have an amazing project called Loon, where they're sort of floating these weather balloons in in a specific configuration. So they'll cover everywhere. Virgin and Branson are engaged in a project to launch a satellite network. Elon Musk's doing a satellite network. There are some Japanese startups doing similar stuff. So basically, everybody will have Internet access for free anywhere in the world from space, and it won't be slow. It'll probably be four to five hundred megabit, which for, for the non-technical listeners is pretty damn fast, much faster than we all have at home today. So at some point in the not too distant future, energy is basically going to be free. And the internet is going to be fast and basically free and available to everybody. So I'm sure we're starting to get the picture of how how different the future might look from this. The third key trend is transportation. There's a lot of interesting stuff going on here. We interviewed uh, the SVP of Hyperloop One on the podcast a couple of months ago. It was an introduction from you actually, which was very much appreciated. And what the what the guys at Hyperloop are doing is creating a new mode of transportation which enables fast point to point transit in a sort of spaceship in a tube, I guess, is the easiest way of describing it. But what this means is you can travel point to point at about eight hundred miles an hour, London to Edinburgh in about twenty minutes, and it'll work for both people and freight. And at launch they reckon it'll be priced about the same as a bus ticket and will get cheaper from there. So again, energy is the biggest cost of running that that network. I think we can see with energy approaching marginal cost, transportation will go that way too. And the other area of transportation that's going to radically change is the autonomous vehicle. So they reckon that autonomous vehicles will be about 10x cheaper to, to own or to use rather, because they'll typically be in a, share, in a shared ownership scenario. And that's two, three years away. I saw the CEO of Waymo give a talk. Waymo is Google self-driving car venture, who are probably the leaders in the space at the moment. They've got it working. I mean, they're, they're running it. Uh, in a pilot in Arizona right now for about 5,000 people. If you're interested, go and check out Waymo's YouTube channel. There's some amazing videos of people using the service. I mean, you basically get your phone out, load up the Waymo app, which looks a bit like Uber, ask for a car. The car pulls up outside with nobody in it, obviously. You get in, you press go, and it takes you to your destination. And it does a great job. They've had no issues with it. You know, you can have it come and pick you up from the supermarket and it'll open the boot and you can put your shopping in. I mean, it's, it's pretty remarkable. And that's today, right? So we're, you know, we're probably, what, three years away from that just being, being everywhere. And if you look back at the Model T when Ford released it, it took about, I think it was about two years from Model T being released when it was about 95% horse and cart still. And within two years, it had flipped, it flipped completely the other way and it was 95% automobile. And people think that this change could happen as quickly as that. So another key trend in transportation that's, that's coming soon. And, and and those are probably the kind of three key areas of demonetization I would focus on. But it's going to kind of cross into everything that we, we rely on every day.
0: So, Rob, what I'm struck by is that the sort of urban versus rural uh, angle, because it's interesting with Brexit, the people who voted out have the lowest levels of immigration in their communities. And Uber is in London and a couple of other cities in the UK. And if you're not in London, then you might never have used an Uber. And therefore, you're unlikely also to get an autonomous car anytime soon, even if they do come to London, because there just isn't the population density. And so you've got, you know, in big cities, you've got taxi drivers all going, becoming unemployed and outside of the big urban centres you've got really sort of no change or potentially fear of that change because that change isn't clear and present to them because you don't see the benefit you just have the fear.
1: Yeah I mean um, if you look at technology developments in the past they do create these changes where industries disappear and people have to retrain I think things are gradual in many ways, but there are a few things like particularly the taxi example that seem like they might be quite immediate actually in terms of the transition. Like if you were a 25-year-old guy right now, guy or girl driving a taxi, I think you should be really, really concerned, genuinely. I think if you were a lorry driver in your 20s right now, you should be thinking about your future. I think if you were in your maybe 40s, late 40s, maybe it's not something you need to worry about and you know you can just kind of ride it out but yeah i think i think the driving examples are quite important ones on the train front i think there's an interesting thing which is when the safety of large numbers of people is involved we're still reluctant to trust the machine in many cases rightly so and i think that's the kind of the point of conflict with things like trains is because it's you know three staff to 500 passengers or whatever there's still this kind of concern but the reality is trains and planes are basically already controlled by the computer and the operator or pilot or whatever you want to call it just sits there and watches and is ready to take over like an airbus takes off and lands itself and more than half of the world's fleet of planes is built by airbus the boeing system is still a little bit more controlled by people but that's there's only a matter of time trains as well it's very similar you know they basically run themselves and you just kind of sit there so, I, yeah, I do think those things are going to go away pretty soon. But your but your assertion that maybe it's a kind of an understanding thing and it's about comfort is definitely right. Like, I think maybe that's a slightly generational change we'll see too. It's that whole you can't be what you can't see thing, isn't it? Like, like if people aren't familiar with something, they're often sceptical of it and, and, and afraid of it, right? It's kind of human nature. Yeah, I think that's fair. And, you know, to the autonomous car example, yeah, it will be certainly initially something that will be uh, something you know used in urban centres and probably not as as prevalent in in rural areas, which may, you know makes makes sense, I guess, right? I think demonetization is a really interesting trend. It's something that's worth reading about and keeping an eye on, uh, and I think it's kind of the fuel that will run the engine of change over the next two three decades and, and kind of bring in this new era of like flexible working and just open. I think, I think we're definitely all going to have jobs, but I think the jobs we're going to have will change. And i think one of the things that's really interesting about that is a lot of people's identity is their profession this is one of the big debates right that definitely comes up on the dystopian side is if the machines take all our jobs which they won't by the way anytime soon what is our identity then because our purpose is in many you know many of us our purpose is to work and we derive huge satisfaction from the work we do in our careers and it's our identity when you meet somebody what do you talk about? You talk about your job and what you do and your career and the people you do it for and with. And, and that is that's who we are. Right. That's that's this this capitalist society that we're all working in. That's where we are today. And so I think the change will be quite profound, actually, when it eventually happens, because we're going to have to figure out how to be proud of ourselves and our lives you know, for something other than the work we do. But that, for me, is still hundreds of years away, that, that future. I think people fixating on this sort of nobody-needs-to-do-any-work view of the world, which is definitely dystopian, in the next, say, 20 years are just way, way off the mark.
0: Rob, what's um, what's wrong with not working?
1: <laughs> but yeah, Well, of course, but I think the reality is we would fill our time with something that looks a lot like work, wouldn't we? We build things or we learn things or you know this whole autonomy mastery purpose is the you know the important truth of what motivates us as humans i, I think we would do stuff right we'd all like become marathon runners or amazing musicians or, or or like the best artists the world has ever seen or i don't know i just i actually am really excited about the prospect of what happens when human creativity is unlocked on mats like that
0: Rob, that's great. Um, One of the other big trends we've seen over the last couple of years is is blockchain and cryptocurrency. And certainly we were talking towards the back end of last year about cryptocurrency and its amazing rise. Since then, it's fallen by 50%. So quite a roller coaster. Perhaps you could share with us your views on where it goes from here.
1: Okay. um, So cryptocurrency is based on a technology called the blockchain, which is is kind of a new way of designing software. So a a paragraph on blockchain. Blockchain enables a kind of new way of building software and applications, which essentially creates a sort of distributed and decentralized network. The simplest way to think about a blockchain is is the idea of a, a shared ledger that it can only be appended or added to. If you imagine that three people in different places all have a notebook in front of them, and anything that any of them write in that notebook is immediately replicated in the other people's notebooks, then if one of you was to lose your notebook, have it stolen, have it tampered with, you could consult with the other two to reach consensus about what was written on that page, scale that out to millions and millions of notebooks, which is what most blockchain networks look like, and you start to understand the power of this technology, particularly its immutable nature, right? It's tamper-proof nature. It's, it's sort of safe and secure by design. And so that's a very simplistic view of what's possible, but it also opens up some really interesting models around incentivizing the people that participate in the network financially. And so it's kind of given birth to this new wave of, of business concepts. And I, I'm confident blockchain is a, a transformational technology that is going to, you know, it's not going away anytime soon. And so the first kind of killer application of blockchain that gained sort of notoriety was Bitcoin, which is a cryptocurrency implementation. And the idea of cryptocurrency is using this blockchain technology to create a, a digital asset that is stored on this ledger, which is owned by an individual because of the nature of, a, of this ledger. There's, it sort of solves the double spending and double ownership problem because it's completely consistent across all the different nodes. So uh, it's kind of given rise to this idea that maybe there's a new way of storing wealth right, and storing value. And that's what Bitcoin is ultimately. It's a store of value. And many people see it as digital gold. And some people think that it or, or sort of spin offs of it, which all have different names, may become the way that we actually pay and transact for things in the future as well, not just the way we store wealth in, in, a, in a way sort of akin to the way people buy gold. 2017 was undoubtedly the biggest hype year so far in, in the history of this technology. It, it turned up actually it sort of late 2011, early 2012, a sort of pseudonym called Satoshi Nakamura, who wrote the original Bitcoin white paper. Nobody knows who he is. This is kind of amazing internet folklore that this invisible guy, this kind of this, this pseudonym, wrote this amazing thing and gave it to the world and kind of gave birth to this movement. But it took a little while to catch on. And, and so sort of five, six years went by. And then in 2017... It really took hold and another major project called Ethereum, created by this sort of Russian prodigy called Vitalik Buterin, came out, which creates a kind of ecosystem for building businesses and products easily on top of the blockchain called Smart Contracts. And from there, we saw this kind of explosion of different projects. And so towards the back end of last year, things probably overheated a little bit, I think it's fair to say, and and sort of it was looking suspiciously like a bubble we would do a kind of healthy correction of the value of many of these things. I mean, the value of some of these projects that had nothing more than a concept was exceeding the value of like major PLCs, which, you know, is probably an indication that things have got a little bit out of hand. People were pricing in a bit like in the first dot-com boom, the kind of speculative value of what some of these things might be once they're fully up and running. So late December into January, we saw a kind of pretty heavy correction in a lot of these assets, but they're starting to come back out of that slump now. And I think actually it bodes well for the health and long-term future of this this technology that this happened. I think if it had continued to to rocket like it was without correction, the inevitable crash would have been so severe that actually it might have caused irreparable damage in many ways to a lot of trust and confidence in the idea. But Bitcoin has become a massive deal. I mean, Goldman Sachs yesterday announced they're launching a a crypto desk. A number of other major banks already have them from a trading and and sort of wealth management perspective perspective. The tra- daily trading volumes are, uh, are sort of 500 to 750 million dollars right now of Bitcoin. So liquidity is coming in. It's, it's definitely something that's going to be used to transfer and transfer and store wealth for the f- for foreseeable future. And there are you know loads of futures products being launched and all that kind
0: of stuff. So I can see the trading volumes, and I can I can I can see the futures products, and I can see the you know transfer of wealth between individuals. But as the man on the street, what? What's the utility? What, what does it do for me?
1: What's the utility of it? I think it makes it easy to store and transfer wealth between two people without the need for an intermediary or a third party. I think we rely on banks in a way that is so programmed into us that we don't realise how ridiculous it is. You know, I bank with, I don't know, a UK retail bank. And if they want to, they can freeze my account and just say, sorry... We're not going to let you have your money. I mean, look at what's been happening with the TSB customers over the last month. I don't know if you've been following this story, but customers of Lloyd's TSB in the UK have been locked out of their bank accounts for, in some cases, a week or two, right? Unable to access their funds. Like, that is a truly ridiculous situation that we put that much trust and responsibility with regards to our our, our money, our wealth, in the hands of a third party. But banking is... is the oldest trick in the book, right? It's something that our society has relied upon since long before any of us were alive. And so we just take it as writ that you don't keep money in under your mattress because it's not safe, you put it in the bank. Well, what if there was a third way, which was a completely safe and secure way to store and transfer that wealth without the need for a a third party? And, And that for me is the single simple utility of cryptocurrency in the foreseeable future without even getting into all of the fancier stuff that it's creating and all of these amazing you know distributed decentralized networks where participants are incentivized to secure or run or do kind of various key elements of, of providing some service just that simple thing that you can store and transfer wealth and actually be your own bank is a major major deal
0: Rob that's excellent thank you very much indeed for taking your time to talk to me today um, how do people get a hold of you
1: No problem at all. Uh, If you'd like to know more, I'm at Robert Belgrave on Twitter. My podcast is uh, Alexa underscore stop or Alexa stop on iTunes, the SoundCloud, where you can hear this sort of ranting on a more regular basis. Uh, (laughs) Thank you for the time, Dom.
0: Rob, just before I let you go, perhaps you could let everybody know where the best place is to find your talk, South by Southwest talk. That'd be great.
1: So the... Uh, episode 13 of our podcast is a full recording taken live on stage. So if, you, uh, if you'd like to hear the kind of slightly more structured 45-minute version of the positive future based on this idea of the digital renaissance, then please come and have a listen to episode 13.
0: The Melting Pot was hosted by Dominic Monkhouse. And you can find out more about Dom on LinkedIn. Just search for Dominic Monkhouse or his companies, Foundry Media or Foundry 51.